Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I speak with returning guest and head of the Integrated Land Management Department at SRUC's Hill and Mountain Research Centre, Professor Davy McCracken, and we discuss the reintroduction of the white-tailed eagle to Scotland, including the timeline for reintroduction, benefits, conflicts with farming, and management for a higher nature value farming approach in Scotland. Hello, Davy. How are you doing? Hi, Alex. Good to hear from you. Good to, good to speak to you. Yeah, it's good to good to have you back on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, just kind of laid out a disclaimer there. Obviously, this is going to be a bit contentious for some people, but uh, hopefully we can kind of uh, find a, a good consensus in the, in the middle of the messages. Yes, I'm sure we can, or I'm hopeful we can anyway. David, do you want to just start, give us a bit of a, a, a introduction to who you are, a little bit of your background, some of the work that you've been doing with regards to seagull management in Scotland? Yes, yeah, so David McCracken, um, I'm an agricultural ecologist, which means I study farming and wildlife interactions. I've been doing that in various guises for over 30 years, um, over 27 years of those being with SRUC, Scotland Rural College, um, in all its, all its previous guises. Uh, I am currently the head of uh, what we call our Headed Mount, um, Hill and Mountain Research Centre. That's based at Kirkton and Octotire Farms near Cree and Larra. And basically up there, we're, we're studying challenges and the opportunities sort of facing land management of all types um, in the uplands, both agricultural and environmental. Um, the sea eagle involvement, I think it's either back in 2016 or 2017, I joined what's called the National Sea Eagle Stakeholder Group. Um, that's a, a consortium, um, Nature Scott, National Farmers Union Scotland, Scottish Crofting Federation, um, RSPB Scotland, etc., a whole host of sort of um, stakeholders who uh, came together to develop um, action plans. Um, so we're now in the second action plan for um, seagulls. Uh, but I'm also um, involved in two additional fronts. Uh, up until relatively recently, we haven't had sea eagles at Kirkton Octotire. So um, the detailed monitoring we are doing each year on the, the health and performance of our flock and um, can be used as a, as, a, as a good monitor, a good sentinel as to what might be happening, what might generally be expected in any lambing season um, throughout, throughout Scotland or certainly throughout the west of Scotland. Um, and we can use that as a bit of a, a, a comparator um, if there are individual farms and crofts who might um, feel that they're actually being um, impacted adversely or, or, or to a greater extent uh, elsewhere in Scotland. We can, we can compare and contrast with, um, with how well um, theirs might have gone. And also related to that, uh, we currently have a, a PhD student with ourselves and the Dick Vett at Edinburgh University with some support from um, Nature Scott, who's looking into the, the issue of black loss in general. That's the unexpected loss of lambs um, on these extensive grazings um, in the Highlands in the west of Scotland. Um, but Fiona is also looking at what role predation in general and, on, and also sea eagles in particular might have to play within that sort of wider um, black loss story. So in summary, I've been looking at interactions and, and increasingly conflicts between farming and wildlife, you know, throughout much of my, much of my career to date. So that's why I'm, I'm here speaking to you today. Thanks very much. No, that's great. Can you just set the stage for the listeners then, Davey? What is the timeline for seagull reintroduction into Scotland? Well, I'll actually start um, by saying that um, seagulls are, are, are or were um, native um, to Scotland and, and, and the wider UK, um, but they were driven um, extinct uh, in Scotland. The last ones disappeared in the early 1900s, around about 1916, I think it was. Um, and uh, at that stage, there was no population close enough on the continent. And in fact, the continental populations were, were also in decline at that time. And so, but there was no population um, nearby that would allow them to sort of recolonise naturally if the if the conditions allowed. So initially, um, back in the um, uh, late fifties um, and and then the late sixties, in Argyll and in Fair Isle, 
there were some initial releases um, of or reintroductions um, of birds, and that stimulated um, the then Nature Conservancy Council um, to look at uh, a formal reintroduction programme. That started back in the mid-70s, I think it was 75, it started, ran between 75 and about 85. And basically, as part of that programme, there was around about 80 um, young chicks, eaglets, not, not very young chicks, but fledged chicks, um, taken from Norway. They were released on the island of Rum out in the West, the west Coast. Uh, and that um, reintroduction uh, at that particular time uh, was successful in that uh, the first pair actually bred on Mullen around 1985. But at that time, it was felt that that small release um, wasn't going to be enough to actually sustain a population over sort of Scotland as a whole. And so there was a second um, licence release of about 60 birds between 1993 and 1998 up in Wester Ross, in the far northwest of Scotland. And, and a third and final release um, occurred in five, again, around about 80 birds, I think it was, between 2007 and 2012. So, you know, finished about 10 years ago. Um, and collectively, um, those three um, reintroductions or introdu reintroductions in those three areas are now um, felt to be successful. Well, they are felt to be successful. The Scottish population is seen to be growing. It's seen to, seen to be self-sustaining. So much so that releases that are now and reintroductions that are now happening down in England on the Isle of Wight, they're actually using Scottish bred birds chicks taken from Scottish nests to do that reintroduction um, down in England. And David, no, thanks for that. that that's great. But um, the idea behind the podcast is that we discuss topics that are affecting sectors that are involved in the farmed upland environment. So where do seagulls fit into the farmed upland environment and what kind of function do you see them playing? Um, so uh, uh, seagulls themselves, they cut across a or can occur across a wide range of habitats. So um, many might think of where they currently occur in Scotland has been open moorland, west coast, cliffy type habitats, but they are also just as home, just as at home in sort of woodland um, and forested areas. Um, they're much more social animals than golden eagles, so they'll actually uh, tolerate um, each other nesting much closer than, than golden eagles will with other golden eagles. So you might find um, sea eagle nests within a couple of kilometres of each other, which you wouldn't find with, with golden eagles. But particularly um, the young birds, and the young birds may take about six years before they actually reach breeding age, um, you actually get or can get winter groupings of young birds. They actually roost together during the winter. They might feed over the sort of same area um, um, at the same time. They're called sea eagles, so they have got a, a, an affinity and association with the, with the coast. So they take quite a lot of um, water birds, take quite a lot of seabirds, um, but they'll also take live prey like um, hares, mountain hares, um, and carrion in the form of sort of sheep and deer. Um, basically, they're, you could describe them as a sort of a, an apex predator, an, an apex scavenger. And the fact that they're doing well in Scotland is also uh, indicative that the sort of the habitat within which they're living uh, is, is actually um, good for them. In fact, there's now about now about about 150 pairs um, occurring in Scotland, um, still primarily um, in the west coast, and still filling in parts of the west coast where they've they've yet to sort of colonise, because the east coast birds been last release was 10 years ago uh, they're still just sort of finding their feet if you if you if you don't mind me mixing that sort of analogy um and so it'll take a wee bit while longer for them to sort of settle in and start nesting in in in, in large numbers down that sort of the, the 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 east coast of scotland but basically they're indicative of a they're, they're, they're a sort of an apex predator that we we had did have in scotland uh lost and now have back. So they're, a, they're an integral part of sort of biodiversity in the uplands of Scotland. So Davy, I want to start with the positives in this discussion. So in your mind, what are some of the benefits to having seagulls as an active feature of the farmed upland environment? And do you have any figures or any data that you want to bring to bear in the discussion? Um, so 
as, as I said earlier, they're uh, an important part of Scotland's biodiversity um, and they're seen as a conservation success story, not just here within Scotland. Um, at the time the reintroductions were occurring and this first reintroductions were happening in Scotland, um, they were, there was also action being taken from um, right across most of the sort of range across what's called Eurasia, you know, from Greenland all the way through to sort of Central Asia, Japan, etc. Um, but basically, um, the, the main benefit um, to um, Scottish society, Scotland as a whole, that's seen from the seagull, that is seen from the seagull reintroductions, is they are now um, acting as a significant draw um, for tourists to actually physically come to Scotland um, to see these birds. There was a report published by RSPB Scotland um, earlier this year, I think it was back in March, March or April, um, where they were highlighting that uh, interviews had done suggested that between um, £5 million and £8 million pounds worth of tourist spend is attracted into Scotland annually um, by the fact that we have um, a, a good population of sea eagles, particularly breeding on Mull, where they're, they're um, um, accessible, i.e. they can be seen. Now, not all that spend is in Scotland. That's the whole cost of people getting to Scotland, depending where they come from. But that same report estimated that there's about £2 million or £2.1 million pound, uh, annually goes into the local economy um, on Mull um, and there was a, a, a separate estimate about 160 jobs associated with that. So a financial benefit, a tourist benefit um, has been shown and, and, and there's figures there to sort of um, to, to, to back that up. And at the same time, David, you and I would both accept that there have been conflicts with the agricultural community in these areas. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit with you about livestock losses. Um, I'm not going to ask you whether or not they occur. We, we both know that they, they do. But do we have any kind of figures as to how severe the issue is? Um, and does the situation change geographically across Scotland? So, yes, um, the... Uh, as you've said, Alex, um, there is no doubt in in, uh, in anyone's mind that um, seagulls do take um, lambs and, and will take live lambs. Uh, where seagulls are occurring, where the, uh, the, the livestock um, flocks are occurring out in these extensive grazing systems, it's, it is much more difficult to actually get a, a, a firmer handle on what the what the um, what the losses may actually be, particularly um, as you may be aware, even before seagulls were reintroduced, we had we had had and still have this issue called black loss, this unexplained loss of lambs in these sort of extensive grazing. So, so that can, does confound things a bit. But as you've said. Uh, previous work looking at um, survey work, both of um, uh, eagle um, uh, territories um, on the likes of Mull itself or, or up in the Gearloch Peninsula, uh, and, and even nest surveys where um, people go in at the end of the breeding season and check what actually um, is in remains are, are in a nest, has been highlighting that um, has been highlighting that um, the birds are taking lambs as prey. Some of those lambs um, may have been scavenged, um, but there's sufficient proof to say um, others of those lambs have been taken um, live or, 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 or near live. When it comes to getting accurate figures, though, um, it, it's, it, it's not geographical area by geographical area. It can vary from farm to farm, and it depends whether, you know, what bird and what type of bird in terms of what type of sea eagle might be actually um, taking the lambs, uh, it may be that a particular farm or a particular croft is on a regular flight area between um, one area and another, and so there's a higher likelihood of their their their, their lambs being seen, and um, certainly a higher likelihood of them being taken. It may be that others, uh, the seagulls, just come across them occasionally, and they, therefore may only take um, one or two. And it may be in other situations there's a um, there's a resident pair, but even though there's a resident pair, um, it's not not all resident pairs will actually take um, individual um, an individual livestock themselves. They may still be focused on um, uh, the other wildlife that that's, that, that's forming the sort of the main focus uh, uh, of of that particular pair's um, diet. But uh, long-winded way of saying we haven't got 
an awful, an extensive amount of information. There's a relatively small number of farms where there was good information known about um, general lamb losses um, in the year prior to sea eagles occurring, and then a subsequent run of data which gives some indication as to not necessarily that the sea eagles were the only cause, but where there's a measurable uplift or increase in the in the sort of losses um, being suffered by a particular flock. Uh, and, I, and that's reminding me to say, it's not solely at the farm or the croft level. It may be in a particular flock or a particular heft. It may only be one part of a farm or croft that's actually being impacted. But roughly, and, it, and as I say, this is very, very roughly, it can't be extrapolated out. It may be in, in many um, um, of these extensive hill flocks on, on hill farms and, and crofts, you may be talking about a sort of a 5% or maybe a 5 to 10% general loss of lambs out in these extensive grazings between sort of lambing, weaning, and then certainly from weaning through until, uh, sorry, um, lambing to marking and then from marking through until to weaning. Um, in some um, farms and crops where there, there is sufficient data, that's suggesting there may then be an increase in losses of lambs, um, more likely being put down to seagulls, uh, increasing that, that overall loss over that period to somewhere between 15 and 20%. But it does vary from, from farm to farm, from croft to croft. So there's no one simple and um, easy answer um, to that particular question, I'm afraid. Farmers and crofters across Scotland will have a kind of visceral reaction to this question. But in your mind, what kind of losses are acceptable or what kind of losses should we be expecting? I mean, farmers will have a kind of critical mass that they need to prevent to, in order to have the replacement stop for the viability of their overall business. Yeah, so I mean, um, uh, as I said, just start by re-emphasising uh, what I'm going to say is about um, hill farms and crofts in general in the first instance. So you've, you've got two main periods where sort of losses can occur out in these extensive grazings. One is in and around lambing time itself, um, um, when there is generally uh, accepted um, that the, the weather, the topographical conditions, etc., uh, in these areas um, means that some loss of lambs um, will occur. And, and, and as I said, that might occur within the sort of 5% to, to, to 8% of sort of, of, of natural losses. Usually, though, when a, when, a, when a lamb gets big enough, um, certainly to be brought in and, 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 and marked when it's sort of four, five, six weeks old and then put back on the, out on the hill with its mother, usually one would expect a high likelihood that that, that, that animal would, would actually survive. I mean, things like um, ticks, fly strike, there's a whole host of other things and, and other predators like foxes, badgers could take, take one or two here or there. Um, that, and I'm, so I'm not suggesting losses are acceptable, but in those sort of situations, I would say if you're seeing more than a 5% loss during that period, then that's something that you would want to be or you should be looking into a bit more closely. As I say, not always assuming that it's sea eagles or even other predators, but something might not be going right on that particular farm or that particular croft that, that bears a, 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 bit, a bit more further investigation. I think the notion of improving our understanding of black loss in Scotland is probably something that we should do as, as best practice anyway. If a farmer suspects, Davy, that they are having a particular issue with sea eagles, what kind of information are you looking to, to know from that business? Well, I mean... <sighs> So, think, so thinking of some of the work that we've done out in the West Coast, some of the work that um, um, Fiona, my PhD student, or mine and other PhD students, is actually doing, um, you only know that you have losses if you know um, what you were expecting to have. Um, and possibly surprisingly to, to, to some farmers um, listening to the podcast, uh, the survey work of, of, of hill farmers and crofters that, that, that Fiona was doing um, highlighted that there's actually quite a high proportion, um, certainly um, over 40% um, of, of hill farmers and crofters who are not actually scanning each year. So they don't actually know what level of um, lamb crop they might be expecting. Uh, they may be working on an assumption to put up to the the put the use to the top, they have X number of use, so they might be, you know, they'll have a, a number in mind that they might expect to see. 
And then if they don't see that number of lambs, then uh, they, they, they may then think, well, actually, something has gone wrong, something, you know, disease, um, ill health, predation, etc., um, has actually um, had a had a, a, an adverse impact on that flock. But but certainly, you know, having a having a a, a good idea as to what um, numbers of lambs you might be expecting, i.e., how well your 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 ewes have gone to the top, um, and also having a, a a good idea of what other things, in addition to the things like sea eagle, might be impacting on your flock? And and is there anything additional you can do to control it is, is, is one of the things that we, I and, and certainly others within the wider sort of sea eagle, what's called the sea eagle management scheme, would, would certainly be advising. So, And David, do we know anything about the kind of viability of farming and how that's being impacted by seagulls in the north and west of Scotland. I mean, these are presumably conversations that you and others will be having on a fairly regular basis with land managers. Uh, yep. Uh, and, and again, I may sound like a broken record. I'll, I'll start off from the premise, not just talking about seagulls as such, but, but basically if you're a hill farmer or crofter um, out on the, um, in, in the highlands or, or, or out in the sort of the, the islands, if your weaning percentage is 70% or below, then that is going to, whatever is causing that low weaning percentage, um, that is going to cause you um, a, an issue, uh, particularly when it comes to actually selecting replacements to go back into the flock, um, particularly as flocks in these environments are what's called hefted. So the uh, the ewe knows where she um uh, the territory that she has out on, an, on a piece of an open hill or a piece of common grazing because she was born there. And if you actually put um, uh, ewe lambs um, or ewe hogs back onto that same hill that they were born on, then they will, they will heft, they will stick to the same sort of area. And, and that's really important because many of these hill grazings, many of these common grazings are completely open. They're, they're not fenced. So you, you want your animals to what's called heft um, to that. If you have 70%, 60%, um, heaven for fame, 50% sort of weaning rates, um, and half of those are, are males, half of those are females, that's really going to reduce your options um, in terms of which animals you can select to actually put back into the flock to keep your numbers up. Um, and it may mean that in order to keep your flock numbers up, you're having to put in um, back in lambs that you wouldn't normally select because they may be um, um, slightly weaker looking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that can lead to sort of a bit of a vicious circle. Um, your um, flock is not performing as well. You um, are having to put um, um, substandard lambs back into the flock, which means the flock doesn't perform well and you can get into sort of a bit of a vicious cycle. So whether that um, low weaning percentage is caused by um, ill health or, or disease or, or by predation um, by sea eagles or, or, or any other predator, that's the type of spiral you can actually um, get into. Um, and that then has a knock-on effect on the productivity of that flock and, and, and how much work the farmer or crofter might then have to do. With, with regard to sea eagles in particular, um, what the, um, the National Stakeholder Group um, has, has done is um, highlighted that there is no magic number of loss threshold above which um, this is going to cause an, ad, an adverse um, impact on the, on the, on the farming or, or, or sort of crofting system for that particular farm or for that particular croft. Everything is dependent on a, a farm by farm, croft by croft basis, particularly with regard to that hefting system. So even a small loss of lambs by sea eagles could have a large impact on the potential future viability of that particular farm or that particular croft. So any low weaning rate in these sort of hefted situations will lead to um, difficulties in sustaining a flock. I wonder, David, could you just speak to, in your experience, what, what you think the environmental benefits of crofting and these kind of extensive hill systems are in Scotland um, and why they need a level of protection? Oh, I mean, the, the, the hill systems themselves. So um, it's well recognised that um, many of the, um, um, the habitat, the, the landscape, the vegetation in those habitats, um, the hill farming and crofting are actually managing, sustaining um, uh, 
many of them are, are the type of open habitats that um, we, not just David McCracken, but nature conservation agencies put um, um, high nature conservation value on. There's, there seem to be of importance biodiversity value um, at a, a, a Scottish, a UK and a, and a wider European level. And because many of these habitats and the species that live in those habitats are associated with open habitats, i.e. The, the management in, in, in this case, or in these cases, the sort of grazing management, is preventing large-scale scrub encroachment and then ultimately woodland and forestry encroachment. The, the management is vital to actually ensuring those habitats remain open and maintain the conditions for the plants, the insects, the birds associated um, with those habitats to, to sort of survive. So, um, uh, hill farms and, and crofts in Scotland uh, are um, recognised as being what's called high nature value farming systems, um, and that's a um, that's a, a terminology that's used across Europe to to, to highlight um, the the importance um, for a lot of the biodiversity on which we now put um, a lot of nature conservation value. That uh, they need management to actually produce the conditions um, that we value, and so they need managers to be um, on hand to um, ensure that that management can occur. And David, so if I can just summarise very briefly some of your previous points, we want to be in a position where we can quantify where an issue is occurring and for that to take place, farmers need to have improved record keeping and that they need to explore options to improve the overall performance of their flock. But if we accept that losses are occurring and if we accept that those losses are occurring because of sea eagles, can we just talk about some of the options around mitigation and control? Yeah, so um, so that's where um, what's called the Sea Eagle Management Scheme comes in. I think it's been running now since about 2015, if not before. Um, uh, and that provides um, um, farmers and crofters who are, are being impacted or are concerned they're being impacted um, with the opportunity to, you know, at the very least get some help to investigate what may be happening on their individual farm or croft, you know, um, help, help them gather um, what the impacts actually are going to be or are being for them in the ground um, and um, allows them to get advice on um, what type of mitigation measures they may be able to um, apply in their situation, such as using um, scaring tactics um, under licence. I'll, I'll probably say a bit in a second about the, the, the level of protection that, that these birds um, actually have. And also through that um, CEO management scheme, as well as those what are called more general measures, um, it's also potentially feasible for hill farmers and crofters where it's known that they are being adversely impacted um, to get um, um, access to funding that allows them to apply sort of what's called, I think they're called enhanced measures. Um, and that, that could be um, funding that allows them to... Uh, uh, employ extra um, labour to actually um, increase the amount of shepherding in a in a, in a problem a problem heft or a problem flock, um, or even to actually help with um, um, tick or, or fluke um, treatment or or even supplementary feeding into those those um, um, affected flocks that again to help get up the overall um, health and, and and welfare and performance of that particular flock or that particular heft, not necessarily to those don't necessarily stop completely seagull um, impacts, um, but uh, they, they, they bring up the overall health of the of the uh, the performance of the the flock itself, and um, and and then especially if the, if it's only a relatively small number of um, lambs that may be taken, then the overall impact on the flock is less because there's a there's, there's a greater number of lambs making it through to um, and weaning and then being viable um, in, in in the autumn to go either for sale or to go back into go back into um, a particular flock, uh, but. The, the types of mitigation that can be applied or could be applied will vary markedly from one farm to the next or one croft to the next simply because the 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 scale and the type of the impact that seagulls um, 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 may be having will differ markedly even from um, uh, uh, farms and crofts that are actually next door to each other. 
I think, uh, David, correct me if I'm wrong here, but when we're talking about control of sea eagles, some listeners may be under the impression that what we're really meaning is shooting sea eagles. That's not necessarily the case, although I, I wouldn't dispute that there will be some farmers out there that would love for that to, to be the case. Can you just outline for the listeners, what are some of the rules around control of sea eagles and what are our options there? Yeah, well, well I'll start by saying that um, sea eagles have um, the highest form of protection um, from any form of sort of persecution um, that's available in Scotland. So it's an offence to kill or injure a bird. It's an offence to destroy or damage a nest, even if it's not in use or it's out with sort of the breeding season. Uh, and it's certainly a, a, an offence to disturb or harass um, a sea eagle um, of any age at, 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 at any time. So uh, they have a a, a large amount of protection um, available to them. So when um, we are talking about control, when I'm talking about control, I'm talking about what type of measures um, may be, well, it's permitted, um, uh, the, the, the correct terminology is licensed um, uh, for, an um, for an individual to actually take uh, against a, 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 an individual bird or a, or a um, a pair uh, of birds that, that, that may be causing impacts on their farmer crops. But those licensed activities are around what I just outlined earlier on, uh, taking, um, um, utilising scaring devices to deliberately disturb or harass the bird away from a particular away from a particular part of the farm where they might be taking um, uh, taking lambs. Um, uh, but not to disturb or harass the bird when it's actually physically at its nest necessarily. Although the National Sea Eagle Stakeholder Group um, and, and others, they're also um, looking at what other type of licensed activities, permitted activities, um, may be feasible um, in, the, in the future, um, but, um, but certainly not... Uh, at this point in time or likely for the foreseeable future, looking at um, um, uh, shooting, i.e. direct killing um, of birds, um, individual problem birds as, as being any, it's not being thought of that, that would be any um, permitted, licensed, acceptable activity in the future. And so talking a little bit about prevention, Davy, what are some of the actions that farmers can take to protect their flock or, or um, disincentivize seagulls from predating on a, on a flock? Well, as, as, as I said, there's, there's a variety of scaring tactics that, 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 that have been um, used um, or um, depending on where the birds are impacting and how the birds are actually operating. It, it may be the removal of, 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 of the sheep from one part of the farm to another part of the farm may be sufficient to actually reduce reduce, reduce the impact. It's, it, it's, there's a range of different things that can be done or can be attempted, but it all does depend on the individual farm or croft sort of situation. And so in any of those sort of situations, I would strongly advise um, impacted um, farmers and crofters to um, get in touch with Nature Scott or National Farmers Union for Scotland or Scottish Crofting Federation, ask about the local sea eagle management scheme and, and then seek advice and guidance um, from um, the uh, uh, scheme and, and what's called the call-off contractors that, that are within that. They can give much more um detailed appraisal, assessment, and then, and then associated sort of guidance and information about what could be done um, at an individual um, farm or croft level. Farmers and crofters who feel that they have an issue with sea eagles might feel that they already know the answer to this question, but is the bird itself by nature quite territorial? I mean, could, could moving sheep to different parts of a hill, for example, be a, a viable solution? And so... Territorial in the sense that they will defend their territory from 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 other seagulls. Uh, I said at the start they're actually a lot more social birds than 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 um, than others like um, and the golden eagle, um, for example. So they will tolerate each other a lot closer. Um, certainly, the breeding pairs can tolerate each other a lot closer nesting, and then thereby sort of. Um, 
sharing some aspects of the sort of feeding territories. Um, it, it, it's important to also say it's not always or not only um, uh, breeding birds that might be causing damage. Um, the, uh, the the young birds, the sub-adult birds in that five, six years before they breed, um, they um, range widely um, and like any um um, young um, animal, you know, they can actually act like a, 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 a teenager and sort of act out um, um, at times. So, um, so it really depends on what type of what type of um, individual it is that may be causing you, your problem. As I say, there's a number of situations where um, the uh, affected um, farms or crofts are simply unlucky enough to be on the flight line from where the birds are actually roosting at night and where they're going to fly to the coast to actually eat on most of their preferred food during the day, but they happen to be flying across a, a, a sort of a lambing park or something like that. And so they, they're, they're taking advantage of um, food that they can that they can actually see themselves. And uh, so it's it, it, it does depend on the individual situation, what you can actually um, um, do for it. Some farmers might find um, success in terms of either reducing or removing um, the, the sheep, the, 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 um, the, the flock from a particular heft. Others not. The, the, the birds may then just simply go to where the, the animals now uh, have been moved to. It, as I say, it's, it's, there's no, there's no um, one-size-fits-all answer um, to, to, to reducing sort of um, sea eagle um, uh, predation within the rules of the, what's legally allowed. So. And we've seen some individuals and organisations advocate for the use of things like polytunnels for lambing. Um, maybe this ties back to something that you've already touched on was the age of the lamb, the, the, um, the age at which you're most likely to be predated on. But I wonder if you could comment on the, the use of, of polytunnels. Oh, well, I mean, certainly um, in, in what would otherwise be an extensive um, grazing environment, bringing your pregnant ewes indoors, lambing indoors, um, you're going to have much higher chance of actually, um, much higher chance of um, bringing um, a particular lamb through to term or, or being able to intervene early or earlier than you would be able to do if it was out in the open hill. Um, so that is, uh, the use of those polytunnels will certainly have a high um, likelihood of, of, of increasing the number of lambs that you're going to get from um, any number of you use that you actually have there. Although anybody um, practicing that and anybody listening to it will know that you can't keep lambs in polytunnels in the west of Scotland, you know, forever and a day. They need to be let out at some point. You're letting them out into the field or putting them back out into the open hill because in most of these um, hill farms and crofts, the amount of in-by land is limited and they have to go back out to the hill at some point. Um, and so you're putting them back out onto the hill. You're putting them back out onto the hill at a a, 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 a reasonable age. They're, they're past the point where they're most susceptible to the type of issues that happen immediately at lambing. But uh, you're still putting them back out into a, an environment where they can be seen by um, predators um, like um, the sea eagles. And many of the, I'm not saying all but many of the issues that we've seen with sea eagles it's 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 after marking after the lambs have been brought in so the lambs are four five six weeks old anyway and going back out onto the onto the hill and prior to that any anything that the eagles may be taking is more likely to be weaker lambs or or or, or, or lambs that have died of other causes and, and, and it's carrying so it won't if you're having to put them back out into an open space and particularly out into the open hill um, where you've had a problem with sea eagles before, it's not necessarily going to actually solve the problem for you, unfortunately. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the the impact or the the influence that the general public have in this discussion of sea eagle management and mitigation. Well, I'm I'm, I'm speaking to you here from um, SIUC's um, headquarters in Edinburgh. I'm sure I could go down along Princess Street and ask 100 people and probably a large proportion of those 100 people, members of the general public, have probably never even heard of a sea eagle or, or, or know that sea eagles either existed in Scotland or exist now in Scotland. Um, 
but many of the of those members of the general public who are, are aware of sea eagles, then certainly. I mentioned earlier it been a conservation success story, uh, a big draw to see these large um, um, predatory birds in their natural environment. Um, general public, in, in particular, would would see uh, would see do see sea eagles as um, a, a benefit uh, to Scotland and something that um, deserves to be here and belongs um, in Scotland. And it was a, a sad day in the in, in the early twentieth century when they disappeared, and it was a good day um, from the nineteen seventies on when when they, when they were reintroduced when they were reintroduced. And David, you mentioned that you're you're working at Kirkton in Auchintyre. Um, I was wondering, could you lay out for any member of the general public who's maybe not familiar with farming practices or or livestock husbandry, just how demoralising can it be for a farmer or a crofter to lose livestock like this? Well, well certainly, the, the loss of any livestock um, is a is a is a concern to um, any farmer. Um, Around lambing time, as I've said, um, the, 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 the weather and the topographical challenges means there, there are losses that occur um, at that time of year. Um, and while they are not, um, they, they are not welcomed, um, they are, they're generally sort of accepted um, that, that, that losses will occur, particularly if, we go, particularly if it's a period of sort of wild weather. Um, most farmers will be more than happy to actually have a, a period of good weather during lambing and, and, so, and so fewer sort of losses. Um, but because so many of these losses from um, sea eagles uh, are occurring um, when a when a lamb has passed that real high risk period, you know the first forty eight hours of lambing and and and, and, be, and beyond, um, so it's an otherwise um, um, apparently healthy lamb. It's gone back out to the to the hill um, um, with its mother. Uh, so losses um, of of those lambs. Uh, but particularly losses to to something like the sea eagle, um, they, they can be so so destroying for the individual farmers. You know, a lot of farmers report a lot of feeling a lot of anguish about what's happened to the the, the lambs that have been lost out in the hill, uh, and it's particularly their helplessness to do anything physically about it, or or, or, or they feel helpless to, to to do anything active to actually um, protect their livestock. Um, all all livestock farmers have a duty of care um, um, to their livestock, and, and all livestock farmers, no matter whether they're you know dairy farmers or or, or hill farmers and crofters out on the, the west coast, um, want to want to ensure that they exercise that duty of care sort of um, um, fully and effectively. And what advice, Davey, would you give to farmers or crofters who have noticed or, or are wondering whether or not they have a, an issue with sea eagles? What's the kind of starting point to, to dealing with that? The, the, the starting point is, is just going back to what I said earlier, it's get in touch with Nature Scott, national, your local National Farmers Union of Scotland, your no, local um, Scottish Crofting Federation representative, um, and inquire, if you don't already know um, how to um, get direct access to um, the, the local um, seagull management scheme, um, reach out to reach out to the, the, the management scheme through 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 those representatives, um, and they'll be able to um, not only put you in touch, but the, the scheme itself will then be able to send out, as I say, these call-off contractors who will be able to come out, speak to you, and do some help you do some initial investigation um, on the farm, and um, to find out what may actually be happening and what, what scale it may be actually happening at. That is that is by far the best way. Trying to actually, uh, well, you could probably. You could probably gain an impression for yourself that it's sea eagles that are causing the problem, but because of the the, the protected nature of the bird, because of anything that can be done has to be done under um, licensed under license. Then going through those formal channels is by far the best way to um, uh, to be able to get help and advice um, quickly. And Davy, Scotland has sometimes been referred to as a, a rewilding nation, um, and obviously rewilding and reintroductions are becoming hugely popular. Um, I just wondered, how should the agricultural community engage with the issue of rewilding, reintroductions? I think the case of sea eagles kind of sets out that it's very complicated and there is a lot of conflict to be worked through. 
Yeah, so um, I, in fact, I just gave a, a presentation last week or an introduction to a, 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 a workshop that was about um, rewilding in, 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 in Britain. Um, I start by saying that rewilding as a term um, means a whole host of different things to sort of different people. And anybody talking about rewilding um, needs to um, be clear what it is they're, that they're, they, they are physically meaning. Um, for me, um, doing any um, uh, conservation work um, on a farm, whether it's at the, at the small scale of, of, of um, setting aside a, a sort of corner of a field um, to, to grow trees or to um, uh, establish um, rougher ground or, or, or fencing off your water margins, that to me is, is some form of, of rewilding. And in fact, the rewilding community recognise that rewilding as a term is a continuum. It forms a whole range um, of different sort of situations from what I've just described, you know, um, small scale tinkering around the edges right through until, until you get to what's called the sort of the, um, the large carnivore um, reintroductions. Um, and, and so it is important um, for anyone engaging in, in, in a rewilding discussion to say, and by rewilding, this is what I'm actually um, meaning. Um, certainly, as far as as far as some members of the general public and some members of the rewilding community, then it does mean getting large predators like seagulls and um, like potentially lynx um, back into the country. But it's not not that it's it, not for everybody. Um, and I appreciate that um, farmers and land managers are very wary and, and very concerned when they hear the term um, rewilding. Uh, but, I, but I would urge them, uh, as I've just said, just to be ask whoever's asking or talking about rewilding, what do they actually mean by that term? And they'll possibly or probably be pleasantly surprised when they actually realise that the what's been talked about falls within the remit of what the farmer or crofter might already be doing or be considering doing in terms of improving wildlife and biodiversity um, on the farm anyway. And um, it's always important from a, from a land, manager pers land management perspective, but also from a, anybody promoting rewilding perspective, um, to bear in mind that whether you're managing the land from an agricultural point of view or whether you're managing it from a, a rewilding point of view, you, it needs management and it needs continual management and for that you need managers um, and other than then small amounts of nature reserves um, the vast majority of Scotland's hills and uplands are managed by hill farmers and crofters and they are best placed to actually help um, do um, any of the call it rewilding call it nature conservation management um, that may be asked of them on, on their farms Brilliant, no that, that's great Davey can I just ask, if you're a crystal ball and we're speculating now, where do you see the seagull species um, being in, in 10 years' time? I mean, are we looking at the normalisation of the species across Scotland or do you think they'll be confined to, to certain areas of the country? Uh, no, I mean, they are uh, certainly in, the, in their wider Eurasian range. They, they, they exist in a, in, a, in a wide variety of situations, even um, even on the edge of sort of um, um, uh, urban areas as well. So uh, I think 10 years' time, would that be 2032? Uh, what did I say earlier? About 150 pairs at the minute, a projection to be about 200 pairs by... Um, by 2025, and in, in modelling that was done um, a good few years ago. Now, I would have I, uh, crystal ball. Um, then, ten years time, 2032, we're probably talking about 300 pairs um, in Scotland. By that time, um, they should have started to actually settle a bit more on the east coast of Scotland. So we'll see um, areas of of the the, the, the highlands and 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 northeast. And I would have expected there's no reason why they shouldn't be down in the southern uplands. I mean, we've currently got a sea at a golden eagle reintroduction program in the southern uplands, uh, but there's no reason why um, um, seagulls. Um, small numbers of seagulls shouldn't re-establish themselves in the in the southern uplands of Scotland. So ten years time there'll be there'll be more pairs, there'll be more even more widely distributed across Scotland. I think it was just was it this summer or was it last summer? The first pair um were confirmed breeding uh, on or near um Loch Lomond 
you know, so within an hour of Glasgow, or within half an hour of Glasgow, um, in fact, in, 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 in most cases within Loch Lomond, so with it, or within half an hour of large urban areas. So they will be much more widespread. Um, pairs won't have increased greatly. We'll have a lot more, um, because we've got a lot more pairs, we'll have a lot more juveniles wandering, and they wander far and, and wide. I mean, some of the, some of the, some of the birds that have been released on the Isle of Wight have been seen back up in Scotland and then back down over on the continent. They range far, far, far and wide. And also in 10 years' time, we will have more pairs out in um, the Republic of Ireland as well. So uh, I would hope not only will we see more of them, but they will become, we hope we will have become more used to actually living with them, um, easy for me to see, easy, easy for me to say, um, but I would hope um, how farmers and crofters will have become not more used to living with them, but they would have, they will have more of the toolkits available to them to allow them to to mitigate any adverse impacts they're having where that where they're actually having those adverse impacts. And I would also hope that we have put in place some more mechanisms that allow. Um, not just the local economy to benefit from seeing seagulls, um, but also um, um, how farmers and crofters um, are recognised and valued um, for the contribution that they're actually making um, to um, seagull occurrences, but also the wide range of other wildlife that's associated where, where, where seagulls actually occur. Brilliant. Um, and and Davy. Scottish government, you, you all have heard this before, but Scottish government have indicated that they want to see transformational change um, to how agriculture in Scotland is, is undertaken in order to address the climate crisis and biodiversity decline. Um, I just wanted to get a sense from, from yourself. What, what does transformational change mean to you and what do you think that means at farm level in Scotland? So um, for me and particularly when, when we're thinking of the sort of the hill farms and crofts that we're representing up at Kirkton up to Tide and the work that we're doing is representing, um, that means not only addressing um, climate change and biodiversity declines um, from wider society's perspective, i.e. doing something on your farm or croft that benefits others, actually a lot of what that transformational change on your individual farm or your individual croft um, will mean uh, is also to actually benefit you as a farmer or a crofter, particularly in helping make your own farmer croft a bit more resilient to ongoing climate change uh, and hopefully making it a bit more economically resilient by actually um, uh, introducing a, a greater range of uh, outputs from your farm that you can get, get actually funding for, not just simply through um, agricultural support policy. What does that mean in practice? For us um, and hill farming and crofting, that is... Um, having more of an emphasis of um, integrating management on your farm for um, um, for, for biodiversity of a, of a wide range of sorts. It does mean integrating more trees um, and, and small areas of woodland um, on your farm um, um, growing, going, going forward. Uh, but I stress the word integrating. I'm not talking, we haven't talked and we're not talking about replacing farming um, or crofting with with trees, with biodiversity management, purely from a biodiversity management point of view. It's making sure that we can actually put in, put, put into um, in these areas um, some additional management uh, that provides the uh, a greater biodiversity biodiversity benefit, whether that's um, water margins, I think I mentioned earlier on, or, or planting trees along the side of rivers, what's called a riparian zone. Or if you've got degraded peatlands, managing those peatlands so that they can actually hold water back and reduce flood risk and further down. Um, or, as I said, managing, establishing and managing more trees and, 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 and small woods on the farm. One, to help with um, carbon sequestration from a climate change point of view. Two, to help with a biodiversity point of view. But also to give your animals more shelter and shade, not only during coarse weather during the winter, um, but increasingly um, in Scotland, we will see much more in the way of sort of drier, drought-like conditions, even in the hills and uplands, um, um, as we go through the, the next 10, 15, 20 years. And we will need much more shade for livestock um, in, in those sort of situations. So it's that farm scale, not stopping farming, it's just integrating more things in and around the farming to benefit the farming as much as it is to benefit wider society. 
And Davey, uh, as I previously mentioned, you're a returning guest on the podcast, so you'll have seen this question coming. But um, I ask this to absolutely everybody who comes on. What is happening within the industry right now that you think more people should be paying attention to? Are there any good practice or innovative ideas that you think need to be spotlighted a bit? Um, so uh, w- with regard to what's happening now, clearly we're in, still in the midst of looking ahead to um, uh, what will be our reformed agricultural support policies or land management support policies. Uh, we're still at the time of recording a bit less clear um, um, on what those will actually, actually, actually entail in detail. What is clear is that um, Scottish Government have been adamant that direct payments will remain in Scotland. Uh, they're not necessarily going to remain elsewhere in the UK, but direct payments will remain in, within Scotland. But it's also clear that there's going to be much more in the way of environmental conditions put on those direct payments. Um, there is a lot of discussion ongoing as we speak in terms of what would be the type of environmental measures, biodiversity measures that would fall under those sort of conditions. Um, but the sort of the best best practice or, or, or general advice I would give at the minute is um, farmers looking across their their, 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 their their farms, their crofts at the moment, might think some parts of their farms or crofts are, are very unproductive from an agricultural perspective um, and, they're, and they're not worth any value to them at this particular point in time. Um, but... Um, coming very, very soon, I, I would expect they will be worth something to you going forward because it will be ex- it will be exactly those type of parts of your farm or croft uh, where you have more um, opportunity, if you're not doing already, to actually meet the environmental conditions that you're going to be asked to um, um, uh, or required to do in order to continue to receive your sort of basic payments. So certainly don't throw out the, the baby with the bathwater in terms of seeking to get rid of some of those what you might think of as ineligible parts parts of the farm. With regard to the subject matter of, of today's podcast, particularly sea eagles, um, best practice, uh, uh, just to reiterate, it, the two things I would reiterate are um, scan your animals uh, in order to um, scan your sheep in order to actually know what, what type of um, what type of number of lambs you're expecting and where there might be some issue might already be some issues with unproductive sheep um, in your flock um, and uh, if you haven't got done so already um, be more aware of what existing animal health issues be it fluke be it trace element deficiency be it ticks um, are known in your farm and speak to a vet and put in place a, 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 an animal health plan um, um, and for your particular um, hill farm or croft. And that will stand you in very good stead in the long run, irrespective of whether you are or are subsequently impacted by sea eagles. Brilliant. Well, Davey, thanks very much for your time this afternoon. It's been a really good conversation. Uh, really enjoyed it. I think farmers and crofters will take an awful lot from that. So on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, thank you very much for, for joining us. No worries, Alex. Very, very happy to contribute. And uh, finally, Davey, how do people engage with yourself at Kirkton and Ochentire? Um, How do people keep up to date with what you're working on right now? So there's a, there's a variety of different mechanisms. Um, we um, haven't yet got back post-pandemic to having major workshops, but uh, I would expect that to um, start in 2023. Uh, although uh, there's, a lot of the, there's a lot of the European projects in particular are currently involved in are involving engagement with farmers, uh, but it's smaller groups of farmers. But I would expect from 2023 onwards, we will, we will have more general farm-level events um, on Kirkton Octa Tyre. Um, but I, I am I'm very active on social media. Um, Kirkton Octa Tyre is a Facebook page. Uh, I, I, I am I'm active on um, um, Twitter. Uh, and for those of you living within you know, general highlands and islands area, then I do a, a, a it's now a six weekly, roughly six weekly column within the Press and Journal where I'm either highlighting aspects of work on, that's arisen on the farm or commenting on issues um, of relevance to upland um, uh, uh, livestock management and environmental management. So there's a, there's a variety of different ways to, to, to keep abreast of what we're actually doing. David McCracken, thank you very much. 
Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe, and follow our podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our contact details at the bottom of our show notes. You may also enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as CropCast, our monthly show providing advice, updates, and scientific insight into crops and soils, or Stock Talk, our monthly panel show providing timely updates and advice for livestock producers. Join us again next month for our next episode of Thrill of the Hill. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.